1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Last Sunday we began our study in 1 John. It is a letter that is written to Christians. And this letter is encouraging Christians to remain in fellowship with God and with each other. That's what this letter is all about. Fellowship. And as we read through this, we find out that that fellowship that they have with each other, that fellowship that they have with God, is in jeopardy if they allow themselves to be influenced by false teaching. Maybe you can look back over your uh, walk with God and see times when people you have known have allowed themselves to be influenced by false teachings of one way or another and have walked away from the faith. Well, in this letter, especially uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 18, John calls these false teachers antichrists. And they're called that because their message that they're teaching is not the gospel. Now, the gospel is basically Jesus because it's, it's who he is, what he's accomplished, and what he's offering to us. That's the gospel. And so uh, those are the key components So if you say something is anti-Christ, you're basically saying something is anti-gospel. Because it begins with who he actually is, who is Jesus, what is it that he's accomplished, and what is he offering us? So who is he? Jesus is God come in the flesh. That's the incarnation. That's what we mean by the incarnation, that God came down here and he dwelt among us. He Uh, And the Word became flesh and and tabernacled. He set up a tent and camped with us. That's the incarnation. That's who Jesus is. He is eternal. He is God. He is sinless, perfect, born of a virgin. This is Jesus. And what has He accomplished? We know that Jesus lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He was buried. And on the third day, He rose again. And then what is it that He is offering to you and to me? He's offering to us eternal life if we will put our faith and trust in Him. And so if someone is teaching something that changes one of those components, it's no longer the Gospel. We talked about last week how the Gospel is a closed system and all of these pieces are intertwined and you can't pull them apart and take one and keep the other two. It's it's all one. And so if someone's teaching something that is contrary to any of those things that are presented to us in Scripture, it's no longer the Gospel. It's an anti-Gospel. It is anti-Christ. Now we all know the word anti-Christ. Our minds immediately go to this fella that's coming on down the road. But the basic idea here is that anyone who is teaching something contrary to the Gospel is anti-Christian, is anti-Christ, it's anti-Jesus. 
Now in chapter 4, verse 1, John tells us that there are many false teachers, just as there are today. And they come in all shapes and sizes. But there was one prevalent philosophy that really caused a lot of trouble in the first and second century. And uh, this philosophy was called docetism or docetism. Or, you know, I, these words drive me crazy. It's D-O-C-E. Okay, D-O-C-E. T-I-S-M. Tism. And I don't care how, how <laughs> that thing is pronounced 800 ways. I don't think anybody knows how to pronounce it. But I'm going to say docetism. Docetism, I'll probably say it differently each time I say it, but uh, this was a, a philosophical thought that stemmed all the way back to, to Greek thought and even probably before that, but it's the idea that the physical world, the material world, is evil. And, uh, you know, if you're a Christian and you're listening to that, you're thinking, well, it is, you know. The creation is corrupt. The creation is fallen. It's, it's sinful. and I can see that. And the root word, this docetism, the, the root word actually means to appear so or to seem so. And so the idea is that Jesus only appeared to be in the flesh. He only appeared to have a body of flesh. Or they would say that the heavenly Jesus entered him at baptism and left him on the cross. And so if you're a Christian and you're listening to this thought, and this is something you guys have to remember that these folks grew up with this kind of Greco-Roman uh, philosophies and uh, things that were taught in schools and the wise soothsayers and things people said. And so it was common. Like in America, it used to be very common what the Bible taught. It's not so much anymore, but kind of common knowledge. And so this was kind of the atmosphere of the first and second century. And so if these fellas are coming into the church and they're talking like this, you know, you're thinking, well, you know, God is distinct from creation. He's, he created it, but he's not the creation. He's very much different. He's distinct. Um, God doesn't sin. There's nothing about Him that's sinful, but creation sure is sinful. We sure are sinful. It doesn't really make much sense that God would be in the flesh. And so your mind starts to entertain these ideas. You may be interested to know that those teachings are alive and well in the United States today. So these fellows, they denied the incarnation. That only Jesus appeared to be in a body of flesh. And so when you look up there, what are they attacking? They're attacking who Jesus is. That's what's under attack. And so we read the prologue last week. And let's read it again. And as you read it again, I think that this should bring some clarity to what is being said. So let's read the first, um, the first four verses together. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
And so these believers that John is writing to are being encouraged to continue to embrace what they heard about Jesus when they believed. To hang on to and continue to adhere to those things that you heard from the very beginning. What was in the beginning. It tells us that what, from, what was from the beginning is the gospel. Here it's called the word of life. The message of life. The message of Jesus. Because you see there in the end of verse 1, word of life. It's the message of the life. The life is Jesus. Jesus is the one who is, was eternal with the Father and has been revealed to us. It is the life that we saw, heard, observed, and touched. It is the life that we have declared to you. The message about Jesus. The Gospel. And so, uh, in 1 John, the uh, fellowship is the name of the game. Um, he's writing this letter so that believers will continue to remain in fellowship with God and with each other. And since fellowship is the name of the game, right off the bat, he's going to talk about probably the most critical aspect of fellowship. He's going to talk to us this morning in this passage that we're going to read that begins in verse 5. He's going to talk to us probably about the most critical aspect of fellowship. Not just with God, but with each other. Confession of sin. That's what the passage is that we're studying this morning has to do with. Confession of sin. And so, uh, let's read that passage together, beginning in verse 5, and it goes all the way to verse 2 of chapter 2. Now this is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in Him. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we are lying, or we are lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. For He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Now, verse 5 is the topic sentence of this paragraph. It is the, the, the theme, it's the main statement, and everything that we've read falls underneath it. It all supplements what is said in the beginning there in verse 5. And that is that John wants us to understand something about God's character. He tells us that God is light. Now, that doesn't mean that light is God. God is light, so light is God. Or God is love, so love is God. That's not, that's not what's happening here. Instead, John is trying to talk to us about an attribute, a characteristic about God. Something that we should absolutely understand. It's telling us that He is light. And that means that He is holy, he is pure, 
It means that nothing is hidden from Him. That's maybe the worst part because we're sinners. That means that the light exposes our sin. There's nothing about you that He doesn't know all about. He knows it all. And so uh, God is light. And this is what He's telling us. He says that in Him, in verse 5 it says, in Him there is no darkness at all. Now that is in stark contrast to us because it is in contrast with our sin nature and it is in contrast with our sinful behavior. Now God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. That is not true for us. So how are we supposed to have fellowship with Him? Obviously, the answer is that our sin must be addressed. Now, when you receive Christ as your Savior and you get on your knees and you ask Him to forgive you and to come into your heart, wash away your filthy sins, and you make that commitment to Him to follow Him from that day forward, an incredible cleansing occurs. But I wish that was the last time you sinned. You know, but it's not the case. And so as we go, we get dirtied up and we have to come back to him with those issues. And so if you want to continue to remain in fellowship with God, you've got to deal with your sin. Now, in the following verses, beginning in verse six through 10 to the end of the chapter, John discusses three claims that people make about sin and themselves that are false. It doesn't mean that these claims are necessarily made by the false teachers. Now, I can take things that I know that were being taught in the first and second century, first century especially, and, and plug it into these three claims and say this is what he's combating. But really, I don't know that that's important because what he's, he's asking us to do is to think about these false claims and see if they apply to us. If we're guilty of making these claims about ourselves. Because if we are, we need to address it if we want to have fellowship. And like I said, this letter is all about fellowship. John is encouraging us to stay true to the gospel, to not walk away from it, and then what it looks like to walk and practice the truth and one of the things that has to happen right off the bat is you have to be forgiven of your sins. You have to confess your sins. And so there's these three false claims. And again, as I go through them very quickly, we have to ask ourselves if we are honest with God about ourselves. So the first claim is in verse 6. And it is the claim that, uh, that you have fellowship with God, but you're living in sin. If we say we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, we're lying. And we're not practicing the truth. Now that word walk uh, actually means walking around. So it's not like you've messed up, you've made this one bad move. It's talking about a lifestyle of bad moves. 
So you have to ask yourself, you know, everybody, I don't care who it is, you go ask anybody. You ask them about to evaluate themselves. They're going to probably think about some things they've done wrong or some habits they have or something. But they're going to come back to you and look you in the face. They're going to say, hey, you know, I'm basically pretty good. Everybody does this. Well, God says that he is light. And if you're going to be in fellowship with him, then you better knock that stuff off because you have to be honest with him. You have to be honest about yourself before God if you want to have fellowship with him. Now, if I do a bunch of bad stuff, I mean, I snapped at uh, somebody here in the church service from the, from the stage one, one Sunday morning. <laughs> you know, pretty stupid, right? So I had to apologize for that. And uh, other things that I've done wrong uh, at home with my family constantly. And so um, if I want to continue to have fellowship with my family, then I have to ask for forgiveness. Right? And so it is, it is with God, but it's also with each other. Now, uh, this one here is talking about walking around in darkness. And so you and I have to ask ourselves if we're really not walking the way we're supposed to. Our life does not depict a life that has been changed by God, a life that is committed to Him. If that's you, if that describes you, then you have to ask yourself, why is that? Why am I walking in darkness? Because... If that's you, then you have to decide whether you've actually been saved in the first place. You know, uh, I've, the worst part about me being up here every week is you have to hear my stories all this over and over. But uh, my testimony, I only have one. I only got saved once. I've only got one testimony, but it's the one that's the most important to me. And I've told you guys that, you know, when I was a little, little boy, I received Christ as my Savior. I really did. But over a period of time, it wasn't overnight, but I moved away from God to where I was the kind of person that you would never have thought was a Christian. You would never have thought that. And everybody I was around was lost. I was out of fellowship with God. They were lost. And so when I got my, uh, on my knees October 18th, 1983, in my bedroom on a Tuesday evening, and I repented of my sins... Do you think I felt bad about that? All those people I ran with and smiled with and carried on with and encouraged. And I've, I've done, I've made some efforts to amend some of those things. But the damage is done. So you have to ask yourself, if my life really doesn't, you know, it's not really much of a Christian lifestyle. You have to ask yourself if you've been saved in the first place. But if you have, and that's you, and you're walking in darkness, then you need to repent because you're out of fellowship with God. It's just a fact. It's what the Bible's telling us right here. So John is encouraging you and I to walk in the light, to walk around in the light, to spend our lives walking in the light. The next claim is in verse 8. It says, if we have no sin, that's singular, not plural, sins. It's if we, have, we say that we have no sin. 
If we say that, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's talking about our sin nature. And I just got through saying that people think that they're basically good. You know, in, 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 in many churches, and I'm not just knocking this, I'm not trying to say they're all bad and we're the greatest. I'm not doing that. But in a lot of churches, a lot of pastors are topical. And they talk about depression and anxiety and happiness. And, you know, they, they move through series of topics and things. And we're kind of a Bible church where we go through books of the Bible. But even in other churches, the conversation is about, you know, being happy, being successful, being fulfilled, motivation. But the Bible tells us that we have a sin nature that is very, very bad. And that it naturally desires to do things that are wrong. And we can't shake it. When you get saved, you still have your sin nature that you still have to combat with every day. That's why Paul said, ah, the things that I wish I would do, I don't. And the things that I want to do, I don't. Oh, wretched man that I am. We have to be in agreement with God about our sin nature. You know, we, we have to, if we want to be in fellowship with Him, we've got to be honest with ourselves and say we're not basically good. Uh, you know, do you think that you go through an hour of your day without sinning? Please don't stand up and raise your hand because I'm going to laugh at you. We don't go five minutes. Even when you're asleep, your mind is regurgitating all of this garbage. And it's just, we are so corrupt to the very core. That sin has permeated everything in our being. We're just filthy. There's none righteous. No, not one. All of our righteousness are as filthy rags. The Bible tells us that we have a very bad sin nature that is hostile towards God and that our heart is desperately wicked. And so God intervened in our lives, you guys, when we were deaf, dumb, and blind. We were laying here on the floor with no heartbeat. And God did something really nice. So the second one here is that if people want to see themselves as being good. It's a denial of who you are. It's a denial of what's going on inside of you. You don't have to teach a baby to be to not to to be selfish, right? You don't have to teach your kids to to be selfish. It's okay, today we're going to learn how to be selfish. You don't have to teach an adult how to be selfish. It's inside of us. It's a corruption. We're going to shed it. We're going to shed it just like this corrupt dying body. We're going to shed these things. Like John in, in this letter, if you just turn over just a hair, look in, just, just hold your finger there, look in verse three, chapter 3. Look how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. Look at verse 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. 
we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself. We one day will shed this body of sin and death. We have been delivered from it and given eternal life. Now, the third one is in verse 10. And it is that if we say that we have not sinned, and so this is plural, now we're talking, now we are talking about specific sins. This is, somebody is trying to say that they're not sinning. Did you know that there, that there are Christians who believe that they have reached a state of sinless perfection? When I was in college in Missouri, there was, uh, it was Brother Jed and Sister Cindy, Jed and Cindy Smock, and they, they go all over the country and they, they rouse up the campus teenagers and uh, say things that they call it confrontation evangelism and uh, the, the kids will all get around them and they throw stuff on them and, and then they feel persecuted and it's this, but they, I remember back in the day and this would have been what, 26, 7, 8 years, 28 years ago maybe, I have to do some math, it was a long time ago, but uh, when I was there and uh, this guy would look me in the face and told me he hadn't sinned in eight, in eight years and uh, I was like, how can you think such a thing? So I don't think that, you know, this is necessarily the example, it's more like you know, Christians put on their best face, especially at church, and we pretend like we're better than we are. We pretend like we've got it together better than we do. And, you know, that carries over into your relationship with God if all of the time you're spending all of your time thinking, I'm ignoring the fact that I do that. I'm ignoring this. This is not who I am. This is not who I am. But it is you. So these three examples, um, you know, John does air out these three, these three false claims that a, that a Christian can live in sin and still be in fellowship with God. That's not possible. Sin does impact your fellowship with God. So Christians can't live in sin and be in fellowship with God. So if there's something in your life that's wrong and you know it's dead wrong, then you need to address it if you hope to continue in fellowship. Now, you'll still have a relationship with God. But there's something between you. I've already used my example a million times of me and my wife. And so, you know, my wife's cool with me. She loves me. And we're going to stay together and all that. But we're not always in fellowship because I might have done something wrong. I may even apologize to her, but it was a bad wound. It's going to take a minute. Fellowship isn't there. So now Christians can't live in sin and just think that they're in fellowship with God. And Christians can't walk around thinking that they're basically good when they're not, and you can't walk around saying that you're not sinning when you are. Be honest with yourself. You have to be honest with God. You know, these are the kind of things that you can tell your mom, or you could tell a judge, but don't try to tell God because he's not going to believe it for even a second. So instead, John has given us the, the solution, the greatest solution of all. We have an opportunity to address our problem. Instead, we can confess our sins to God. That's why all of us should have 1 John 1 9 committed to memory. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. One of the very first verses I learned 1 John 1 9, 1 John 1 9, 1 John 1 9. It should be committed to all of our memories. 
It's when we take full responsibility for our sin. There's no blaming or, you know, my environment or the way I was raised or the way I was born or none of that nonsense. It's where you're just taking full responsibility for the things that you've done with God. That's why the word confess means to say the same thing. It means you're saying the same thing about sin that God does. You are in agreement with Him. And we'll notice here that something really wonderful happens when we confess our sins. That He is faithful and just. That He's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. He returns us to fellowship. All we have to do is humble ourselves and ask Him. And be honest. Now in chapter 2, John refers to these Christians he's writing to as my little children. In the Greek that means little born ones. And he says, don't sin. That's the standard. That's God's standard. That should be our goal. He says, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. My little children, do not sin, but if you do, you have an advocate with the Father. Now an advocate, that's the same word that John uses of the Holy Spirit. It's the idea of someone coming alongside you at a time of need to help you. An advocate. We studied the book of Philemon not too many weeks ago. We remember that when Paul wrote that letter to Philemon, he said, Whatever Onesimus owes you, charge that to my account. If he he does owe you anything, charge it to my account. Well, here we have Jesus as our advocate. And Jesus is in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And when our sins are confessed, He says, charge that to my account. And then in verse 2 it says that He is the propitiation for our sins, but not just ours, for the whole world. That word propitiation is, uh, it means satisfies. What Jesus did on the cross satisfies all of the righteous demands of God. And because His sacrifice is sufficient, we can share it with the whole world. Now, in closing, I'd like to ask you to turn to one other place in the Bible. It's John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This is a familiar place in the Bible. So much of John is not in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So much of John. But uh, this is in the upper room. This is when they have the Last Supper. It's when uh, the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. It's when Jesus teaches them and teaches us what the Lord's Supper is and what it represents. Something else happened. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. It was such an incredible act of humility, so much so that Peter tried to stop him. 
So let's read what happens. It says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13, it says, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. So this is pretty good news. Jesus doesn't like what <laughs> he's he's got a plane ticket, but he doesn't like the he doesn't like what's getting ready to happen. But he's getting ready to return to heaven. You know, Jesus left heaven and he came down here, and the and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, he's getting ready to go back to his place, his rightful place of glory. So something fantastic is getting ready to happen to Jesus. Now he knew that this hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now by the time of the supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God. So he got up from the supper, laid aside his robe, took a, took a towel, and tied it around himself. And then next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterwards you will know. Well, you will never wash my feet, ever. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. He said, well, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head to such extremes. At first it was like, oh, you're not touching me. He says, hey, wash, give me, wash everything. You know? And he says, and Jesus said, one who has bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him this is why he said, you are not all clean. And when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. That is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. And there's more there to read. People would uh, walk everywhere and they wore sandals and so the ground was muddy or it was dusty or it would be wet with dew and then dry and I mean, feet got nasty. And a lot of times when you ate, you would lean on, you would recline and so it was head to foot, head to foot. And so when you're eating, you know, you, you, some of his feet were barking, you know. And so what, I don't know, I've read a lot about it, but uh, it sounds like... It sounds like outside the door of a house there'd be a basin with some water. A lot of people just wash their own feet. Probably if you went to a very nice place where they had a lot of servants, the biggest, most important servant wouldn't probably do it, but the lowest guy, the new guy, the rookie, he probably had to go wash the feet of all of these people coming in and out of the house. Well, here you got 12 disciples at meal with Jesus and nobody's washed their feet. Instead, they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. This little passage 
in reference to what we've been studying in 1 John, reminds us that the believer's position in Christ is eternally secure. But sins that we commit on a daily basis disrupt our fellowship. And so, in this passage, Jesus is distinguishing between salvation and fellowship. Salvation and the daily confession of sin. If you've taken a bath, you're clean. But you still need to wash your feet. One of the neatest things about this passage is in verse 10. When Jesus told Peter that you are clean. He was talking philosophically first, so kind of broad, general. He was like, you know, if you're taking a bath, you know, you, you just need to wash your feet. And then you're completely clean. He said, Paul, he said, Peter, you are clean. Not all of you is Judas. He was talking about Judas. It gives us the impression that Judas was not saved. But right there, Jesus just like confirmed to Peter that he was saved. I know I've accepted Christ and so have you. And we believe we have eternal life. But wouldn't it be nice to just have Jesus look you in the face and say, Craig, don't worry, you're saved. He told Peter, you are clean. And the reason Peter was clean and the other disciples, with the exception of Judas, were clean is because they had put their faith in Jesus. And that should give you and me great assurance since we too have believed. Let's pray.